All right, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Romans 1. Romans 1. I'm going to start reading in verse number 1. I'm going to read down through verse 7. Just follow along as I read. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm going to start over after I turn that on. I'm, going to get in, I'm in Romans 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he hath promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead by whom we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight I want to bring a message entitled, Called called to be Saints. Called to be saints. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, as I uh, try to explain uh, what you've laid on my heart from this passage, that I'd be faithful to it, and that uh, you just give me wisdom to communicate what you would have communicated. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme of this passage is really lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's an introduction to where he's going to go with the rest of this book. It's an overview, if you will, of where he's going to go in Romans. And it's interesting, the structure of this introduction that he presents here is very similar to many of the most powerful speeches given in history. I think back of Patrick Henry gave that speech, give me liberty or give me death speech. We all know that one. We're familiar with it. And what was so powerful about that speech was the way that he pulled in historical facts and historical context, and he recounted the history that incorporated into the current events, and he made application to eternal truths that bound them all together and made it an irresistibly compelling case that liberty was more important than life. Most times when I read an introduction like this, Paul gives many, and pretty much all of the books that he writes, he gives some sort of introduction, and I breeze through them, and I pick up reading and start thinking, actually, in verse 8. And I miss the point of the introduction. All this is inspired. All this is part of God's Word. It's important. But, uh, I got ahead of myself. Uh, this, this introduction, in reality, is an irresistibly compelling, compelling case to choose Christ over temporal life. It's the case that Jesus Christ is the great Son of God, and we are called to be His saints from all nations. We are called to lose our life in order to find it. 
And that's, that's the compelling case that he lays out in this introduction. I want to notice, first of all, the first thing that he calls out is the call to die. If you notice there in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, many of us know how strange it is for those two things to be in the same context when we think about Paul's former life. Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, whom he blasphemed. Jesus Christ, whom he hated. Jesus Christ, the disciples of whom he persecuted, threw him into prison. He was a reviler. He was a blasphemer before. He was the one that held the coats of them that stoned Stephen. He was the one that went to the high priests and asked them, hey, give me letters of recommendation to the people in Damascus because I hear there's a bunch of them Jesus followers over there. I want to go over there and throw them in prison too. But he starts off, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, that very one, that very name that I hated. Paul's life before, the life that he chose to live before, was in pursuit of killing the gospel. He went from a blasphemer and an injurious person to a person who brought, tried to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. That was Paul's life. And he was called to die to that life. Instead, he was called to become an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in losing his life, he found life eternal. He found the life that God had intended for him to live. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, he was called to be an apostle, and he was separated unto the gospel of God. He went from his life being the pursuit of killing the gospel to his life being the pursuit of being separated unto the gospel and to bringing others to the gospel. What a glorious change. The second thing we see in this passage is and it's just in this little parentheses right here. Like he, he just he again. He's trying to get to the main meat of it. But understand, we want to we want to unpack some of this introduction. In verse two, which he had promised this gospel that he had promised aforetime by his prophets in the holy scriptures. This gospel has been promised from the beginning of time. We see this now. Looking back, we can see it all the way back in Genesis three, where it talks about the head of the serpent would be bruised by the seed of the woman. All the way back from the beginning of time, God had a plan for the redemption of mankind. That is the gospel. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Moreover, I declare unto you the gospel. And he goes down and it, become, it, it becomes apparent that the three things that are the gospel, that make up the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's the good news. Christ became flesh, dwelt among us, died and was resurrected to new life, carrying our sins upon him and being raised victorious over them. This promised gospel, which he had promised by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. If you think about the saints that received these, these promises of the gospel and you think back on the, the things that they were told and the things that they understood uh, I just want to read a couple of those. Um, one of them, for Abraham, he received some of these promises of the gospel. In Hebrews eleven thirteen to 19, and we could go to the Old Testament and find these, but they're more scattered out, so I'm going to go to the one where it's more condensed so we can get out of here faster. But Hebrews eleven 
13 to 19 says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. There's many things that we could point out in this, but first of all, they seek a better country. Abraham left a country that was good. Abraham left a place of ease and comfort. Or the Chaldees was very well advanced. But by faith, he sought something that God had promised him. He didn't see it before. We all know this. He, God called him to go out into a place he hadn't received. But by faith, he went. And then it says, they desire a better country that is in heavenly Apparently, Abraham understood that, hey, there's a life after this. Abraham believed in the resurrection. It's very clear. It's very clearly stated what was in his mind when God told him to go sacrifice Isaac. He he believed that God could raise Isaac up from the dead. He believed in the resurrection. Abraham believed that when I die, this isn't it. There's a heavenly country over there that I'm living for. I can't see it. I don't really know anything about it. They didn't have Luke 15 where it talks about Sheol, And it talks about Lazarus and the rich man. They didn't understand all that. They didn't have the book of the Revelation and and 1 Thessalonians where it talks about the rapture and, and Paul's testimony of being absent from the body and present with the Lord. He didn't have all that. But by faith he understood there's going to be a resurrection. This isn't it. I'm going to see the Lord one day. Abraham was was promised this gospel, this resurrection. He believed in it even though he didn't understand all of it. Moses, Hebrews eleven twenty three to 29 says this, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, because he saw that he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, but he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians assigned to do were drowned. Again, there's many things that we could, we could link to him understanding the gospel, but the main one in that passage there is the Passover. They didn't understand all that. They didn't understand why it was that when the, the judgment angel came over the, the land there that 
the blood on the doorpost and the lentil would save them. They didn't understand that. But by faith they obeyed. By faith they did it. They understood from, from the beginning of time that sin required a sacrifice. They understood that there had to be blood shed for the sin of mankind. They understood that. They didn't understand why. They didn't understand how all that worked. But they obeyed by faith. Looking back, we can see how the Passover is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ being our lamb shed and being the the protection over the door and the lentil, protection over us from the judgment of God. But by faith, they received it. Moses received promises of the gospel. Isaiah received promises of the gospel. Isaiah is one of the most detailed accounts of aspects of the gospel. But if you think about it, how much did he really understand? Verses, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 9, 1-7 says this, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lighted, afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people who, that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and hast not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And you see how there's many aspects weaved into this about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about how in Galilee of the nations, the people that walked in darkness saw a great light. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. When, when Jesus came down, and I didn't have time to find it and write it down, but you can, you can pull up your little phone and search it later. But when Jesus came on the scene and he, he comes on the scene to Galilee, he, he quotes this passage. They that walked in darkness uh, saw a great light. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about this passage and how that those in, of Galilee that walked in great darkness before, they saw the light of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, and he weaves in some of these things. He, he kind of combines when Christ is going to come back in his kingdom. But for unto us a child is born, to unto us a son is given. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as a man. He was born, and a son was given. 
He was born of a virgin. The son was given. He wasn't born of natural birth. He was, he was given in that miraculous virgin birth. Another passage, we're not going to read it, but it's very familiar. Isaiah 53 talks about another aspect of the gospel, about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he was going to be despised and rejected and brutally beaten. And that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? For the redemption of mankind. But if you think about that, even as he, as he pens this, how much of it did he really understand? But he received it by faith. Daniel's another one, and I'm not going to read all of this because it's already 723, but Daniel's another one that talks about the uh, there's coming kingdoms. He talks about, he predicts all of the coming kingdoms. And then in, in chapter 9, he talks about how Messiah is going to be cut off, but not for himself. Who's he cut off for? He's cut off for you and I. Eli, Eli, Lamont, Sabachthani. My God, for, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was cut off for us. How much of that did Daniel understand? I don't know. But he received it by faith. You know, if you think back to the Apostle Paul in particular, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And as such, he would have studied all of the Old Testament, all the Scriptures, and that he missed who Christ was. He didn't understand all of it. How about, his, how about Jesus' disciples? Did they understand the whole plan when Jesus came? And even when he told them, the Son of Man is going to be crucified and slain and raised again the third day. And what did Peter say? No, 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 not so, Lord. I'll die first. When they came to take him away, what did Peter do? He pulled out a sword. He was ready to fight. He was ready to establish that kingdom. Why? Because he didn't understand Messiah is going to be cut off because you, Peter, you need a savior first. You need someone to take away your sin first. These sacrifices can't take away sin. He didn't understand that. So I make the point to you, how much did they understand? But they received it by faith. They received what God revealed to them and it was accounted to them for righteousness. You see this over and over and over again in Hebrews. God said this. The saint did this. And it was counted to them for righteousness. They didn't have Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They didn't understand all of that. 
but we do. They saw through a glass darkly, Paul described, but they received by faith the words of God. And we must do the same. We're called to be saints. And just like they were called to be saints, and they were called to live by faith, day after day after day, Abraham got up every morning and pulled his pants on one leg at a time like everyone else. He had a robe, but you get the point. And he just obeyed God every day. It's simple. It's hard, but it's simple. We must choose to follow the light of His Word each day. The gospel promised came to pass. That's the other encouraging thing about this. What had He had promised before in the Scriptures, all was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to get into more about the lineage of David, but you think about what's the odds that a man from Nazareth or Galilee would be in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth? It all worked out. God had it all planned out. How is it that in the Old Testament it would be predicted and, and prophesied that he would, the Messiah would be called a Nazarene? Well, it's interesting how that all worked out when they were when Herod was trying to kill Jesus and they fled into Egypt. That's another one. Out of Egypt have I called my son, right? Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, the gospel fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What are the odds? You can't put odds on that. It's impossible. But the gospel came to pass. It, it was promised and it came to pass just as it was promised. Verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. How miraculous is that? The required lineage of the Messiah had to come through David, the king of Israel. This is significant because the Lord promised to David a perpetual kingdom forever. And so the Lord Jesus Christ had to come through David's line. But if you think about the destruction that was hurled upon the Jewish people and hurled upon the line of David, you get to get a little understanding of how impossible that was and how great our God is, how great the Lord Jesus Christ is. And I've just listed four, but the purge of Pharaoh, that was one. He commanded the midwives to kill all the men, the men child, children of the Israelites. What does that do after a couple of generations that that's followed through? They're all dead. And the women inter- intermarry with the Egyptians. That's what happens. And the entire race of the Israelite people is gone. That's what happens. That was intended to be a purge by Pharaoh. How about the destruction of Athaliah, who tried to wipe out all the seed royal? She did, except for one. Almost. It was cut off. Almost. The genocide of Haman. Think about that one, how, how the Lord intervened through a woman, a, a Jewess named Esther, 
What are the odds that you would become queen just before this, was, this attack was to take place? It's impossible. But God had a plan. That's another one that lived by faith, walked by faith every day. Was it easy for her to risk her life? No, we know that was hard. We, get, we got the whole story. She almost didn't do it. Right? She had to get some counsel from her, from her uncle saying, no, this is more important. You're not going to be saved alone. You, you, have, you have to do this. Were you not placed in, maybe you were placed in this point, at this, at this place, at this point in your life for just a time as this. She obeyed by faith. She risked her life by faith. She didn't know the king was going to grant her her petition. He didn't, she didn't know that he wasn't going to kill her on the spot. But she stopped this genocide by Haman, this, this intent this wicked man had on destroying the Jew, Jewish people. And then the fourth thing I have is the wickedness of Jehoiakim. He was a king that was cut off from the, the royal line. The Bible said in judgment of him that, uh, and I think it's in Isaiah, that none of his sons would ever sit on the throne again. And it was actually his cousin who became the next king. And if you follow the line of Christ through Mary, it skips Jehoiakim. It goes through uh, Nathan, one of David's sons, and then it continues on down through the generations. It doesn't go through. It doesn't go through uh, all the kings and through Jehoiakim. The Lord worked all that out. And if you notice, Joseph's line actually does go through the line of Jehoiachin. Jehoiakim. He uses both names. He fulfilled all that. He was Jesus Christ made of the seed of David according to the flesh. He fulfilled all of that prophecy. In verse 4 we see the resurrection declaration and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection is the key that silenced all critics. You've got to remember in the time, and this has application to today as well, but in the time that Jesus was living, a large part of the religious leaders didn't believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe there was a resurrection. The Pharisees confessed that there was. But the Sadducees didn't believe it, and they taught it. I'm not sure what exactly they taught, but they didn't believe in in life after death. What do you say when someone that you watched crucified by a bunch of professionals at killing people is walking around the streets ministering to people afterward? What do you say? There must be a resurrection. How do you refute that? You can't. Why is it that they went to to Pilate afterward to try to seal the tomb? To make sure that they couldn't say that he resurrected by false means. They couldn't steal his body out of the tomb and say, oh, he resurrected like he said. They were trying to make sure that it wasn't wasn't, uh, a sneak 
sneak thing, and they and the disciples duped all the people, and yet he still got out. How do you, what do you say to that, Sadducees? What do you say? You got no argument. It, it brings them, it, it silences the critics. The resurrection is the key to the whole gospel. Without the resurrection, we're all men most miserable. Without the resurrection, there is no life eternal. Without the resurrection, there is no conquering power over death, hell, and the grave. But he did raise, rise again. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 15 it says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It's gone. It's not there. This is the declaration of the Son of God, and this is the declaration of His power. Think of the power that is denied to tyrants throughout history by people who understand this. Think of how maddening it would be to be Nero or one of the other tyrants throughout history who tried to squash a group of people and try to stamp out the truth, try to exterminate the Word of God. People who were like those uh, religious leaders that told uh, Peter and and, uh, James and John not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. People that hated the Lord Jesus and wanted His name not to be mentioned ever again. Think of the power that has denied them when they put, put the, the saints under the rack and they put them under the torture and they put them under the pressure and they refuse to recount. They refuse to uh, assure them that they won't speak anymore in, in the name of the Lord Jesus. They stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, we're not careful to answer you, O king, because we'll not bow down to your gods nor worship the golden image that you've set up. They're unbreakable. What good is it as you, as you as this lifted up tyrant being able to exact from men around you whatever you wish except for these people. Everyone else is playing their, their game. Everyone else has their price. Everyone else has their, their thing that they're willing to sell themselves for. Not these people. They're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you say I have to violate His commands, I'm sorry. I'm not careful how to answer you because I'm not going to do that. And there's a whole branch that we could go off on that, but we're going to stop right there. Freedom, liberty, okay, that's where that goes, okay? It's out of the resurrection. All right, moving on. In verse number... 5 and 6, by whom this Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all the Holy Scriptures, who is the gospel in the flesh, fulfilling all the Holy Scriptures, as I said, the Son of David, as promised, declared to be the Son of God with power because of the resurrection, by whom this, by the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience to the faith among all nations. We haven't all received apostleship, okay? He's talking about we, 
Paul and Peter and James and all of them, okay? But we have also received grace. We have received the grace for the obedience to the faith. Okay. Explain. Is it easy always to obey the right the, the word of God? Is it always easy to be obedient to your faith? No. Sometimes it's hard. It was really hard for these Christians here in Rome. They had this thing called a Colosseum. Ringing any bells? Where they threw out a bunch of people and watched them get torn apart for sport? Wasn't easy for them. It's not easy many times to be obedient to your faith when maybe some money's dangled out there. That was hard for Paul. Maybe it's not easy to be obedient to your faith when there's a position hanging out there, but every once in a while maybe you have to lie in order to do that job. We all have our buttons. Whatever it is, sometimes it's hard. We're fighting against our flesh, the world, and the devil. We're going against all the forces around us. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. This is the grace that he gives to us. He gives us this unmerited favor to help us make the right decision, to help us be obedient to the faith. For the obedience to the faith among all the nations. No matter what cultural background, I got that one. No matter what your cultural background, no matter how difficult it is, imagine trying to be a Christian in a Muslim country. That's hard. That's really hard. You see some of the torture things that they do? I saw one where they slice people's fingers up in little slices, and uh, it's nasty. They don't really have a really good uh, court system over there. It, it, it takes uh, one other person to say, hey, this, this guy did this, and he, he blasphemed Allah or whatever. We can stone him if we want. That's hard to live in that environment. But God gives us grace. No matter what your background, no matter where you're from, among all the nations, we receive this grace for the obedience to the faith for His name. It's all for the Lord. It's all for the glory of God. And then finally, this last paragraph it's just a greeting. He's just greeting the people in Rome. But I've got I've to tell you something about this that really excited me. There's a bunch of saved people in Rome. In Rome! Hiding in the catacombs so they can have their services, but they're out rubbing, around, rubbing elbows with people in the street, daily in the market, witnessing, carrying on the Great Commission, even though they're not sure who they might be witnessing to, and it might be in the back of their mind that, hey, this guy might turn me on. Well, there's a bunch of saints in Rome. How do we know that? Because he wrote a whole book to them. And he says to them, Beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But wait, there's more. 
If you go to Philippians chapter 4, we memorized this a while ago. This is why I remembered it. In the end of Philippians chapter 4, he sends greeting to those that be at Philippi. And then he says, especially to they that be of Caesar's household. There were people in Caesar's household that were beloved of the Lord, called to be saints. They might have been a chamberlain. They might have been a cook. They might have been his niece. I don't know who they were. But they're in Caesar's household. The most powerful man on the face of the earth at the time. He had a bunch of these Christians running around, these saints running around, right under his nose. Amen. The Lord is not weak. He is all-powerful. He can do anything. He can even put some of His people right there in the places of power, in the places that hate Him the most, in the places that don't value them. Amen. In conclusion, and in application to us, it can be ridiculous how easily we get demoralized by the current events that are shaping up badly. Uncertainty in the coming wars. We see like China and Ukraine and all this stuff. And what's going to happen? Oh, I don't know. We can pull our hair out and be all worried. Value of the dollar, food shortages, disease, tyranny, etc., etc., etc. And we should be concerned. I'm not saying we should live in a, uh, on a moon under the rock, under a rock somewhere. Okay? But in this introduction, he gives us a, some context that we need to live our lives in every day. He gives us some perspective. We serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. He can make the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest emperor on the face of the earth, to go mad, just like that. He can calm a storm with His voice. He can raise the dead. He can raise Himself from the dead. Can He not give us grace for the fight that we're in? He's called us to be saints. Can He not give us the grace to do that job that He's called us to do? Yes, He can. How many battles have we already lost because we were so focused on the noise around us? Or maybe we were a little bit down because things at work were hard. I've been there. But the Lord Jesus Christ has provided us this little passage right here, this little introduction to give us some perspective. He's provided us the gospel. Our orders have been commissioned. We are called to be His saints among all nations. Let's walk by faith one day at a time until we see Him as He truly is. Victorious. Victorious.